I'm thankful for that, but I'm, I'm really thankful to be back and in the Word of God with you. Will you please open with me to John chapter 8 this morning? John chapter 8. We might not get there. Um, but as you make your way, if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. It's, it's good to know that John chapter 8, as we're going there, is, is a continuation of John chapter 7. Um, when the guy back in the 1500s or whenever it was put all the numbers and the, the, the things in there, uh, he, wasn't, he was just kind of making it to where we could all understand the chapters and verses and kind of memorization and things like that. But quite often the scriptures just keep going. They keep going from chapter 7 to chapter 8. is isn't like uh, John sat there and said, now chapter 8. No, they, they broke it up differently. So John chapter 8 is a continuation of John chapter 7. In John chapter 7... Uh, where we were a few weeks ago, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. It's one of three major feasts that all Jew, basically Jewish males were required to go to per year. They're commanded by the Lord, hey, three times a year you got to be in Jerusalem and for these feasts. And so Jesus and basically almost all the nation is gathered together for a seven-day feast, eight-day feast basically. Uh, they're in Jerusalem and Jesus attempted to go to this feast in secrecy because six months before, six months prior to this, at the Feast of Passover, Jesus ended up healing, up, healing a man who had been crippled for many years at the Pool of Siloam. Remember that. He, he healed him, and it was on a Sabbath. And instead of our lovely Jewish leaders being excited about this, what happened? They got upset. Not that, that uh, they got upset. Instead of rejoicing over this man's healing, they got upset that he was, Jesus was actually healing on the Sabbath, they got really upset because that was a work. And how could this man who supposedly is from God be doing any work on the Sabbath? We're the law keepers. He's the law breaker. By the way, everybody likes Jesus because he's got these uh, miraculous powers. He's doing these things. He's claiming to be from God. And, and you can see that um, the, the, the focus is shifting off of them and onto Christ. And their wicked hearts are exposed. And John is just going to drive this home over and over and over until you see those men nail Jesus Christ to a cross with a mob of people behind them because they have rallied the, the crowds, finally have rallied uh, to the place where they are gathered together, screaming at the Son of God, crucify him. This is where it's all headed. John is taking chapter after chapter to, to not only to show the contrast between the light and the darkness, but also the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the light of the world that came into darkness in man's wicked reaction towards his glorious light. Amen? And so instead of seeing this validation that Jesus was the Son of God, they began to try to kill him because he did that healing on the Sabbath. They began to seek to do this. And they also began to, um, uh, they were upset because Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. He was claiming to be the son of God. These two things were just blasphemous. And so they're looking for a political means to rally the people to their side so they can go ahead and, and, and fulfill their murderous intent, uh, intent. And they're also looking for a legal means as they're trying to get Jesus caught in some kind of violation of the law of Moses. And so in chapter 7, which is six months, uh, back six months later, um, 
from that previous, from chapter 6, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, now at the Feast of Booths, and it's more of the same. The Jesus leaders are looking for Jesus. He, he came secretly because he didn't want to be um, the focus of that. And so in the middle of the feast, Jesus begins to teach the people. Obviously, he's exposing himself. He begins to teach the people, and then the Jews see him there, they recognize he's there, and they begin challenging his authority in front of everybody, questioning his authority. And Jesus speaks about how he's, he and the Father are one. And you have these great conversations how Jesus is saying, the Father and I are one. We're one. What you, what you are persecuting is you are actually persecuting God. When you are against me, you're against God. And so these Jewish leaders, they're trying to sway public opinion. You see this back and forth over and over, much like today. Many people have opinions about Jesus Christ. You just ask anybody, what do you think about Jesus? And you'll get everything from he's a great person to, you know, what a made-up fairy tale that is. So if you look at John 7, verse 1 tells us that the Jews sought to kill him. And then we see uh, in verse 20 that the rumors had started uh, by the Pharisees that Jesus had a demon. That's how he's able to do all this works. Because the Pharisees are trying to explain why Jesus has this power. They're like, he has a demon. So people, some people think he has a demon. We see that the Jews are trying to arrest him again and again in chapter 7. The crowds were divided, some believing, some doubting. And so there's a series of ex- intense exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees and the people even those who said they claimed to believe. And we left off a few weeks ago with Jesus standing up on the last day of the feast, most likely in the middle of, uh, it's the last day, the great day. It would have been a, a water celebration where they're pouring out water on the altar. That water would pour out. And it was really a cry of the people, uh, well, remembering back to God's deliverance as a people of Israel when God, when Moses struck the, struck the rock and water came pouring out and they were saved in the wilderness. A picture of that deliverance of water delivering them from total, absolute dying of thirst in the wilderness. So looking back, but also that ceremony, uh, Josephus and others say, was a looking forward to, um, uh, looking forward to God, will you please provide that same provision for us in the year to come for our, for our crops. And so there's just this connection there in their hearts. And it's in the midst of this. On that last day that Jesus cries out in verse 37, it tells us, Jesus, if anyone thirsts, he just cries out in the middle of the temple for all to hear while this is going on. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. And so here Jesus, the Son of God, is crying out in the temple of his Father to all who could hear. And as the people are most likely observing this water ceremony, they're remembering back and looking forward. Jesus says, I'm what you need. I'm the one who saves, and I'm the one who provides. And they were looking for water that had an end. And he was offering water without end. Living water. Quenching the human soul. And Jesus spends his ministry explaining who he is to a thirsty people who don't even know they're thirsty. They are in such spiritual darkness. Like me. Like you. Until Jesus Christ busts into our life by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and shows us we are totally thirsty. 
We are totally hungry. We are totally empty. The wells we go to run dry. The food we have gone to will never satisfy. And he offers himself to us today. Beautiful. It's in the midst of all. Jesus, the Son of God, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And what Jesus was really proclaiming is eternal life. I am eternal life. Come to me for life. I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. Come to me. They were asking for that physical water, but Jesus was offering that spiritual water. And so Jesus openly invites all who would come and drink to come to him. And when Jesus invited all to come and drink, anyone who thirsts to have eternal life, we see division. We see how people react to that. Right now, your hearts are set one way or another towards Jesus' call to you right now. Either you're like, I'm all in, or I got this, or that guy's crazy, or whatever it is. The offer still stands. And some people there were wondering if he was a prophet. Others believed that he was the Christ. Others wanted to arrest him. Even the ones sent by the leaders to arrest him were confounded by Jesus and divided themselves because no one had ever spoken like this. And so there's an intense battle as the light penetrates the darkness of the world. And either people are coming to the light or they are running away from it. It's one or the other. And in the end, in chapter 7, verse 53, it tells us that they each went to their own house. That's how it ends. And picking up in our text this morning in chapter 8, and I'm not going to get into the validity of chapter one, uh, verses 1 through 11 uh, being in the scriptures and later and all that type of stuff. We, we can go over that another time. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, which we know is, is basically, when you guys think of the Mount of Olives, those of you who haven't been to Israel, you think, okay, like it's this, it's something like, you know, out of the Hobbit. You know, the Mount of Olives is just this giant thing protruding out. It's not really, it's like a mile away from Jerusalem. It's down a little valley and up a little valley, and there it is. And today there's a bunch of gravestones all over the side of it. But it's on the east there, just about a mile away. That'll become important later when we get to John. But that's where Jesus slept. And then verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. My guess is this is the eighth day, and the celebrations are over. People, things are winding up. People are going to church kind of before they're headed, headed home. He sat down and taught them. In verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. The day before that, in, at the end of chapter 7, which I probably should have just read to you because I explained it all, but Nicodemus, who... Jesus visited earlier. He was one of the Pharisees, John tells us. And in verse 51, he says to the rest of the council, he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Nicodemus points out to his colleagues that they were being hypocrites, uh, that they were being lawless, that the very thing they were trying to seek to get Jesus on, they themselves were guilty of. 
And, uh, you know, they, they didn't have any evidence. You guys, you guys got to have evidence. You got, there's a, there has to be some kind of trial. Like, back off. What are you doing? Hold your horses, right? What charges do you have? And verse 52 tells us that the council, this group of people, responds back to him. They said, hey, are you from Galilee also? In other words, are you really that uneducated? And they give him a hard time about some stuff because they just talked about Jesus' education. They didn't want to hear it. But apparently Nicodemus, in his attempt to get them to wake up and to listen, what happens? He ends up motivating them to go get more charges against Jesus. It's the exact opposite thing. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And so instead of them going, you know, Nick, you're right, uh, you know, we're, we're being a brood of vipers. Instead, they become even more motivated to get Jesus charges against him. And so what happens is Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and the people are gathered around him and the scribes and the Pharisees, they drag in this woman caught in adultery, right? And that's a capital offense. She's going to be executed. That's what's going to happen. And they, and they bring this case before Jesus. They said, what's your judgment? What are you going to do? Imagine we're having Bible study. We're hanging out, teaching, and someone drags someone in here before, you know, before, <laughs> and, and it's just like, okay, hey, this woman's caught, and our law says she's got to be executed, and you're claiming to be, you know, a teacher and all that stuff, so what, what's your judgment? I don't know. I'm like, I got to go. <laughs> it's, a, you know, above my pay grade, some kind of slick little saying or something. This is a, this is a crazy situation. And so here all these people are gathered around, and there's this woman. And adultery is a very serious situation. It is and it was. Um, Plainly put, the seventh commandment says, do not commit adultery. Intimacy between uh, anyone, it needs to be between a man and a woman who are married. That's that's God's definition of, uh, of, of sex that is blessed. Anything outside of that is condemned. In the, the harshest, strictest manner. Within marriage, it's blessed, and outside, it's cursed. That's, those are God's parameters. He created it, and he says, sex is for marriage, and that's it. A little later in the Law of Moses, you see the consequences for violating that law spelled out. In Leviticus chapter 20, 10, it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, substitute in any person there, but both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is the law of Moses. You commit adultery, you're going to die. That is the law. And so under the law of Moses, there's a capital punishment, capital crime for committing adultery. And so the trap was set for Jesus. Would he uphold the law? Or would he disregard the law? Very difficult situation. You see what they're trying to do with Jesus there. And give the Pharisees an excuse to arrest him. This woman was brought before Jesus. She was absolutely guilty and she was going to be executed, no doubt. Now, I have no idea where the guy is. Maybe he was already executed. Or maybe he was conveniently left behind. But regard, we're not told. But regardless, this is the person they, they needed to make their point. I suppose there's some shenanigans going on there, but we'll, we don't know. But it's obviously that these men were using this woman's situation to their advantage to test Jesus, to get him to compromise, to get him to be 
in error in some point of the law publicly. So listen to what happens, verse 6. They say, what's your judgment? And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Think about that. Let the first person without sin, who is guiltless of breaking the law, let them throw the first stone. I know, it's, it's kind of a PG-rated thing going on here. <laughs> let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone at her, right? In verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Now I, I knew, I wish I knew what Jesus was writing. A lot of speculation, that's the fun thing about like, what we don't know, like what's going to happen today in all the games. There's a lot of speculation. Things are built on it. And so basically there's a lot of thoughts. Maybe he was writing their sins on the ground. Maybe it was connected to some verses in the Old Testament. It doesn't say. But what Jesus said is important. Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus knew the state of their hearts. Isn't that crazy? Jesus saw straight through them. He looked right at their hearts. He knew the internal workings of what was truly going on. Of what they were guilty of. And something in his words convicted them. They knew that he knew what they knew. They were guilty. And this is why some of them say, you know, some of the commentators say that Jesus was writing on the, on the ground what their sins were before them. You know, just seeing Jesus' position on adultery, it's worse than the Old Covenant. It's worse. I wouldn't say it's worse. He, he knows the real intention of what he meant when he wrote it. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 27 through 30, Jesus addresses adultery when he says to his disciples, says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Flip it around for you ladies as well, right? If your right eye causes you to sin. Notice, not skipping a beat. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into where? Into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into where? Into hell. So adultery wasn't... Just the act, according to Jesus, it was what? The intent of the heart. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah. You walk around thinking, okay, I'm justified because I didn't do something. 
When Jesus goes, well, what about your heart? And he expands that to hatred and murder and, and all these other things and stuff in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters. He says, so you didn't murder them. But what do you got going on in your heart? Do you have a reality TV show going on in here? You're guilty of hell. Judgment of hell. This is crazy stuff. And, and here Jesus is saying it's better to experience self-mutilation. He's using an extreme thing. I mean, how many of you want to pluck out your eye? How many want to cut your hand off? No, no hands raised off. <laughs> That's a bad joke. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? No one's, no one's wanting to do that, right? Why? Because those things are vital to you. They are important to you. They are so connected to you. And Jesus said, it's better for you to go through something like that and lose that than for your whole body to be cast into hell. See, people are wondering, okay, I didn't commit the, the act of adultery. And Jesus says, you're guilty in your heart. And unless there is such extreme action taken, you will be cast into hell, your whole body. It's not just being stoned you need to worry about. It's what God is going to do with you after you're stoned. I don't know about you, that scares me. Anyone else? I need to be saved from that. There needs to be such drastic action in my heart, in my life. I've got to do everything that I can in order to do that. And here's the thing is, we, is we're not good enough. And the cure to all of it is you must lose your life. You must give it up in faith to Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole point is. Be perfect as your Father is in heaven is perfect at the end of chapter five there. The problem is we are not perfect. There's no right, one righteous, no, not one. But I know of one. And we're looking at him. So Jesus' teaching on adultery was not like, yeah, she did that. Hey, you know, oh, look, at the, look, at, look at the circumstance she's in. Let's just let it slide. No, it was the holiness and the righteousness of God must be executed. Jesus absolutely was all in on the law of God being fulfilled. But how that was fulfilled was that he took the wrath of God upon himself. Uh, that's, let, me, let me rephrase that in just a second. But it's so serious that Jesus uses these analogies and his teachings. And so the written law of Moses addressed the acts. The penalty was death. But the intent of the law that God is pointing at is it's not just the outward. It's the inner thing he's looking at. And that is what we are condemned by. It's not mere physical death, but eternal judgment and hell. And why do we avoid these things? Why do we avoid these things? The very name of Jesus means God saves. Saves from what? This. They were concerned with the external. Jesus seems into their hearts of the men. And, and some say that Jesus was writing their sins on the ground. Perhaps we don't know. It doesn't say, but when he spoke, it convicted them to the point where no one among them could execute that woman because he knew that they, what they knew. You're guilty of this, what you're condemning her over. 
They're in the same boat. You know, her sins were obvious, weren't they? They were totally obvious. They caught her in the act. Totally obvious. Her guilt was obvious. They dragged her out for all to see. Theirs wasn't. It was hidden. It was cloaked in self-righteousness, in religiosity, in position and power and leadership and whatever you want to say. It was all, it was all hidden. But here Jesus, he, he exposes their guilt in front of the people. And it's interesting that what they sought to do with Jesus, it happened right back at them. You know, lesson for Pharisees, don't try to trap Jesus. They sought to put him in a situation where he'd be found in violation of the law. And it found, and what happened is they were found in violation of the law. They were guilty of breaking the law. He, are you without sin, Pharisee? Is what he was saying. And what happened? They were guilty. They were guilty. And it says in verse 9 that they left one by one, oldest to youngest. They were exposed. And they left, and it says that Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I imagine the crowds are still around, but it doesn't say, but he's left alone. And you see this woman in total, I mean, can you imagine, right? Being that woman, being caught, first of all, dragged out, exposed like that in the most public way by the boat, by the highest council in the land, they take you, they drag you in to the most public festival that's going on in front of the most popular rabbi. And they bring her in front of all of them as they pronounce judgment upon her, waiting to be executed. And here she is, alone before Jesus. Little does she know that he is the great judge of the entire universe where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he will judge the world righteously. He will separate the sheep from the goat. The one whose law she had just broken, she's standing before him, and here is his response to this guilty adulteress. Jesus stood up, verse 10, and said to her, Woman, which is really a term of respect, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. This woman deserved death, absolutely to be crushed. And Jesus gave her mercy. This is the gospel. This is what it means for us. This is what we proclaim. The world is under condemnation, but God desires to give mercy through Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. How can, how can Jesus give mercy? How can this happen? What about the law? I think this is the thing we struggle with, that balance quite often in our hearts. 
John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's very important. The righteous requirements of the law was in no way set aside by Jesus. We have to know that. In no way did he set aside the law. Was he saying adultery is okay? Hey, it's okay to hook up. It's okay to you know, do all these things that, that our, you know, our modern Christianity just kind of throws out there and says, oh, God is just so forgiving. Just have a nice life and do what you want. God will forgive It's like, no, none of that. Absolute holiness is what is demanded. And Jesus upheld it and he lived it. But we can't. The righteous requirements of the law were not set aside. They were satisfied in Christ Jesus. He satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He lived the life that we cannot live, not just on the outside, which is what the Pharisees were concerned with, but he had a pure and holy and sinless thought life, heart life. He was perfect through and through. He is all that we could never be as mere human beings walking in the flesh, totally sinful through and through. He's the sinless son of God, and he died in the place of lawbreakers, the innocent in place of the guilty, living water for our parched souls, light in the place of our darkness. Church, this is the message of the gospel. Keep coming back to it. This is the message of Christmas, by the way, as we already talked about. Thank you, Andrew. The gift of eternal life found in Christ alone, not because we deserve it, but because he is merciful. Our God is a God of mercy. This is why he came into the world, to give us his life, to redeem a bride for the Son from the Father. But first, by living the life we could not live before God. Jesus came to live a life that we could not live. He came to live the righteous requirements of the law, the second Adam. I don't want to get into that too deeply right now. But secondly, you know, he came to live the life you couldn't live. He died the death. You should have died. He paid the penalty for your sins. And thirdly, he not only saved us, from death, he also gave us new life. He took us from death and brought us to life. Isn't that awesome? To give us his new life, by giving us his Holy Spirit. He, uh, you know, the theological term is, is he imputed his righteousness to us. You see, Jesus not only saves you from what you've done, he saves you from who you are. And he gives you himself. And it's now his spirit who lives inside of you, empowering you. And as God looks at you, he sees you as righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. And so this is the gift of God in Christ Jesus, eternal life, not only saving us, but saving us too. That's the message. Not only saving us from sin and death, but saving us to eternal life. And like this woman, we are as guilty as can be. We have been, Amen. And the mercy of God is still accessible. And you know, the cool thing about God is he takes the woman off the ground 
And in a sense, he'll say, go and sin no more. But then it's those people <laughs> that he sends into the world to proclaim the message that they just received. That's a Christian. Those who have received the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, and we go around, we don't make light of sin. We also don't judge people over their sin, but we speak the truth in love, amen? And the mercy of God is, is absolutely still accessible. This is what we need by believing upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The law satisfied is satisfied in Christ. The mercy of God is shown in Christ. And now we have his life. What a glorious God we have. But just so we don't misunderstand the grace of God, real quickly, I want to end. Jesus says to the woman after this, what does he say? Go and keep on doing it. <laughs> Continue to do adultery. I know you identify as an adulteress, but we're, we're good with that. Go and sin no more. Man, what do you do with that? He actually called what she was doing sin. He wasn't dismissing. He was showing grace and mercy. And how he tells her to sin no more. That's is always the impact of Jesus upon a person who's received him, who has received his life, who's experienced the mercy of God. There's a change, church. It's not from the external. It's not, you know, meet all these things and then you become a Christian. It's because you've received mercy from God. There's an inside-out work of God in your life. And as his spirit now dwells in you, there becomes a disdain for sin. There becomes a desire for holiness. There becomes a hurt in your heart when you hurt the heart of God. And you know, as a believer, when you're not walking in the Spirit and you are walking in sin, He convicts you. And He convicts you because that's no longer who you are. Walk as a child of God. Sin no more. Jesus isn't saying you are sinless. He's saying sin no more, right? By his grace, church, we deny ourselves after that mercy. We deny ourselves, we pick up our cross and follow him as the Spirit graciously empowers him, as we follow him in obedience. And there's a gospel message out there that emphasizes the love and the grace of God, but it omits the responsibility of holiness on the part of the recipient of that grace. And that is a false gospel. God saves and he sanctifies. And then he glorifies. Jesus commands her, go and sin no more. No more adultery. No more walking around in darkness. Walk in the light. Amen? Some of your hearts are heavy because you've been walking in the darkness. You love Jesus. You've called out to him. He's saved you. He's done a work, but you just got caught up in the darkness again. Sin no more. Lay it down. Start walking in the light. Confess. Get it done. And back into fellowship. Back into the life of the church. Back into the light. And your, and your soul will be revived. 
You have no life apart from Christ. This is what happens is, is I think to us often, I'm just kind of free, freestyling here, but we come to the Lord and, 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 and we receive this grace and there's this connection with Jesus and there's an abandonment of sin and then all of a sudden we just start picking it back up again. We grab it on, all this type of stuff and we, and we, we think, oh, this is the new normal and you know, I'm saved and then there's just this, man, just got a bunch of dead Christians kind of walking around because you just can't do both. Like, cast it off. Go to Christ, confess it. Go to your brothers and sisters, say, I need prayer. Let's move forward. Let's walk in the light. And then when that happens, man, there's just an empowering, a joy of the Holy Spirit in your life, and there's an overflowing, and there's a flowing through. Don't deny that if you're here that this morning. Holiness is not a bad thing. It is actually, it's, it's not legalism. It's like what he saved us for, to be holy unto the Lord. And yes, we are not perfect. <laughs> no excuses, though. We're aiming for to just submit to the Lord and let Him work in us to walk in that light. And I want to close with this, by the way, just, just trusting and obeying Jesus, but I want to close with this. And I want to start with this next week, and this will be just briefly. By the way, I'm not going to give a, a sermon like this so you aren't going to fall asleep on the Christmas Eve, Eve service. It's going to be condensed, like 15, 20 minutes. Not even football time, like literally 15, 20 minutes. No commercials, no two-minute warning. It'll just be that short. But just read the next verse. Right after this, what does Jesus say? Verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the what? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So fitting right here at Christmas times. Jesus said right after this encounter to the woman, listen, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness, but you're going to have the light of life. That's Jesus. That's who we're following. That's why we're gathered. Not to hear Pastor Maddo but to hear what Jesus did and what he says. He is our life. Lord Jesus, take over. Father, forgive us um, where we have ceased to sin no more, so to speak, or we, we've abandoned the pursuit of your glory and your name and your holiness and Lord, would you restore and renew a right spirit within us as a church? And I pray that as your spirit convicts and cleanses us, Lord, as we confess um, our sin, that there would be a lightening of our hearts. There would be a joy of the Holy Spirit, that that love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, forbearance, self-control, all those things would flow into other, our, our lives, our relationships, the heart of this church, everywhere around us as we just walk in beautiful fellowship with you this season. Thank you for your abundant mercy for sinners. Thank you for the amazing grace. Thank you for the sacrifice you made on our behalf. Thank you for giving us your life freely, Lord. And so, Lord, be blessed in the heart and the life of this little body and the, and the rest of believers around Walla Walla, and may that extend to the world. 
And uh, Lord, may you truly be the light of the world through us, the redeemed, those who've received mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.